0: Welcome to
1: Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John, And I'm Andy. And here we go again. Yes, we do. And somehow we still haven't finished off Greater Saga. No. But I I blame you for that. (laughs) You do? I don't think that's entirely fair. Why? What are you talking about? You're the one who cut off the
0: last couple of chapters of Part 1, expanded Mm. them in Part 2, and then insisted on breaking the epilogue off into a standalone Part 4. And here we are. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me how it's not fair.
1: Okay. Uh, well, when you put it that way, you may be on to onto something. Okay. And uh, you took point on prepping this one, so God only knows how long it's going to take. Well, then I'll I'll take the blame for the length of the summer of Gret here. But, uh, you know, I've been having a lot of fun with this one. I, 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 can you think of anything that we've done with Gretir that would be worth cutting? No. It's true. Yeah. And to be honest, I still feel bad that we cut so much
0: out. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, yeah. Especially in the first part. If I'd known we were going to do four episodes on Greta, I probably would have included more from the life of Onan Trayfoot. Mm. We kind of had to rush
1: that one. Yeah, and I felt the same way, which is why I pushed for us to slow down. So I think the overall effect has been pretty good, uh, and this has been a lot of fun for me taking our time with a saga, maybe doing a little bit more with the material than we usually do. Oh, I agree. I just hope
0: the audience feels the same way.
1: Yeah, so do I, actually. Because uh, they're about to get some more of Gretir's saga right now, and lots of it.
0: Well, except Grettir won't actually have much of a role in this episode.
1: Yeah, well, he he's dead, you see. So there's <laughs> not much for him to do.
0: Well, I mean, not necessarily, right? Death doesn't always mean gone for good in the sagas. He could uh, swell
1: up, turn black, and come back to haunt the countryside. No, that would make him even more monstrous than he already is. And I'm kind of starting to develop a soft spot for grumpy old Gretir. Really? I, I thought you were pretty disgusted with him. Well, overall, I am. Uh, I don't think he's a very nice guy, and I'm not going to budge on that opinion for the most part, because I think Grettir is the cause of his own problems.
0: Uh, Wait a minute. I'm willing to go with you up until the burning of the sons of Thor in Norway. That was just an accident, and it wasn't his fault. Okay. And the resulting outlawry, both from Norway and Iceland, is a huge injustice to Grettir. The guy didn't even have a chance to defend himself in court.
1: Well, he did in Norway. Don't you remember he dashed that kid to the ground?
0: No, 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 the, uh The trial was aborted, and I believe it was a demon sent to taunt him.
1: <laughs> sure, John, a demon. Look, this
0: saga has giant bears, <laughs> witches, walking dead, sinister ghosts. I don't think a demon is that big of a stretch.
1: All right, that's fine. But even if I grant that Gretchen was unjustly convicted, which... I do, actually. Um, <laughs> I still believe that he handles himself poorly in Outlawry. He is a lazy brute. He still abuses those around him, and he's too unruly a character to garner much sympathy from the audience.
0: Well, I think you're partly right, but I think you're wrong to say he doesn't garner sympathy from the audience. Don't hmm. forget, this is one of Iceland's most famous and beloved heroes. This is the guy that cleanses the land of supernatural disturbances. Whether it's a demon, a draugr, or an evil spirit, Gretter's the guy to call.
1: I'm just saying he's like the original Ghostbuster.
0: Uh, no, I would not say that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but someone uh, might.
0: Well, right. One might. Uh, and you can't get too upset at a guy that accomplishes all the good deeds that Greta does in this saga. Mm. Do you want me
1: to list them for you? No, I don't. He's a hero. <laughs> <laughs> I Well, I'm well aware of Greta's heroic adventures. I'm not arguing any of that. I'm only saying that he doesn't get much sympathy from me. Look, I recognize that he's a complex character. He does a lot of good in Iceland, running around and solving people's problems. I applaud him and I admire him for that. But uh, it doesn't mean that he's a nice guy. Well, he doesn't have to be nice to play on my sympathies. Well, in some cases that's true, but I don't really think that he does. Whoa, the, uh, wait, wait, wait. didn't this
0: start by you saying you were developing a soft spot for Greta?
1: <laughs> yes it did sorry all about right. that then then stop running him into the mud and tell us why you're contradicting your previous position wait a minute now you don't get mad at Gretchen for his <laughs> conflicting moods why are you getting all worked up about mine I mean, <laughs> if if anything you should be praising me for my rather humanizing complexities, to borrow a phrase from the scholarship <laughs> listen i'm gonna call third the witch and get her to curse you in a second if you don't start talking about this newfound sympathy for gretter okay all right uh well you know, I didn't start feeling bad for him until near the end of the last episode. Uh, his outlawry is incredibly unfair, but all the same, I imagine he would have gotten himself outlawed at some point, regardless Ooh. of how that case turned out. <laughs> and I can't imagine why anyone in Iceland would have wanted his outlawry to be revoked, given the way that he typically behaves as an outlaw. And don't forget that he's a pretty rough figure, hardly the noble outlaw that Gisli and other literary outlaws represent. Ring! Ring! Uh, hello?
0: Is this Third the Witch? <laughs> yes. I've got a long-winded scholar here for you to curse.
1: Are you available right now? All right. All right. Look. <laughs> nice voice. <laughs> like, like most people, I, I can't help but feel bad for Grettir in the later stages of the saga. There's something about the hopelessness of his situation, the, the endlessness of his outlawry, and the effect of Glom's curse on him. The saga author does such a nice job of capturing Grettir's vulnerability in that last section that I would have to be a far crueler person than I am to not feel something. And then the way that he goes out at the end, mm. ah, it's just not right. Yeah, yeah. No, whatever you feel about Greta's personality, there's nothing good about his death.
0: Thurid's curse basically poisons him, infects his body, and saps all of his strength.
1: Yeah. I hope you hung up on her because I don't think she'll appreciate the way you're talking about it right now.
0: Oh, no, she knows how I feel. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh It's, it's a tragic end for Greta. The fact that he doesn't get to go out with guns blazing, doesn't get to take anyone with him, really. He takes one or two
1: nameless figures with him. It just doesn't feel right. And I'm glad you at least appreciate that. I do. And, uh, and I think that, that's kind of the point of the scene. I mean, don't get me wrong. I may think Redhair's a brute, but I, I think he's a very well constructed character. And the more that I think about this saga from start to finish, the more impressed I am with the author's accomplishment. It's pretty now, remarkable.
0: It is. And I have to point out that you were also the guy complaining about repetition and lack of tension in the last episode.
1: All right. All right. But I'm, I'm going to stand by that part too. There are only a few <laughs> moments like that. So I'm willing to forgive those minor stumbles in, in narrative construction because I think the work as a whole is really a remarkable piece of literature.
0: Oh, agreed. I mean, say what you will about some of the other sagas we've read, but this saga ranks high in the pantheon of all medieval literature.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and one of the things that makes this such a literary saga is the epilogue. Look at you! Was that a segue?
0: That was a segue. That yeah, was a nice transition. Thank you. My pleasure. Are, are we pushing the imaginary button for this epilogue or not?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, there there aren't really a lot of new characters to meet, and the action's pretty straightforward and short, even though we're going to talk about it for a long time. Uh, I think we can do without that this time around. Okay. And plus, honestly, I'm running out of reasonable music beds to... Uh, put under those goofy summaries uh so let's pick this up where we left off no problem all right uh well why don't you remind me where we uh, where were we at the end of the last episode <laughs>
0: well we had just buried gretor and his brother alugi for the second time and uh thorbjorn ongle
1: or thorbjorn hook had just been outlawed for using sorcery to kill it that's right uh hey did you know uh incidentally one more digression did you know that you can visit drangi island uh and see the supposed burial site for Gretter
0: well, I mean, I knew I assumed you could sail up to it, but I wasn't aware you could actually visit the grave.
1: Well, you know, I can't confirm that it's actually the site of the real Grettir's death, but it certainly connects to the saga, which is, I think, an important distinction to make. Sure. Anyway, so when I was looking for a good picture of Drangi for the website, I ran into a couple of blogs by people who had visited the island. Um, they've got some great stories with pictures about this trip, so uh, maybe I'll post some links with this episode on our website, uh, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. It's pretty cool, though. Uh, In one of the the pictures on the blog, you can see uh, a ladder that you have to climb up in order to get to the top of the plateau. Oh, yeah. Long, long way down. Not for the faint of heart. Uh And you said they actually
0: have like a a marker or a shrine or something on Greater's burial site?
1: Yeah. um, I think there's a plaque there in one Mm -hmm. of the pictures that I saw. And I can't tell you, uh, after seeing that, how much I want to visit Drangi. I mean, of (laughs) all the locations mentioned in the sagas outside of the All Thing... I think this would be one of the most amazing sites to visit. Very cool. We have really got to organize a saga thing tour of Iceland sometime. Mm, Yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, Why don't you start thinking about uh, how we might convince our universities to fund this? Do you have a good rationale for whatever project we're going to pursue in Iceland?
0: You don't think we want to take a selfie on Drangi
1: as sufficiently noble and academic? (laughs) No, I I don't know why they would fund that. (laughs) Um, All right, well, let's get this epilogue rolling, shall we? All right. The exile of Thorbjorn Hook.
0: Okay, now as I said before, Thorbjorn Hook had been exiled from Iceland for using sorcery against Grettir. The and like most exiled Icelanders, he makes his way to Norway, hmm. and things go pretty well for him at first.
1: Well, that's because he's going around telling everyone about how he killed Grettir the Strong, and mm. and everyone in Norway already knows who Grettir is, and they're pretty amazed that he could. Accomplish a feat like this, and because of this, uh, Thorbjorn's reputation spreads throughout Norway, and he's celebrated as a hero. Yeah, but that's only because he doesn't really tell them the whole story. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: And since the Norwegians have nothing to corroborate Thorbjorn's story or to undermine
1: it, they buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Oh no! Eh? No, no, no! Eh? We are not starting no. the pun game again. Not going to bite this time. Don't even try it. <laughs> Now, now, Thorbjorn Hook has one problem. As the story spreads, it eventually comes to the ears of Thorstein Dromund. And it's about
0: time. We've been <laughs> pumping up Thorstein Dromund for like three full episodes now.
1: Yep. It's about time he does something. Well, he did harbor Grettir after the failed ordeal, remember? So he's been active. Oh, right. They spent a the morning laying in bed and comparing their arms. <laughs> That's right.
0: Uh, Grettir, if you'll remember, poked fun at Thorstein's slender arms. But Thorstein told him that those slender arms would be the only ones to avenge him.
1: And that is exactly what Thorstein is thinking of when he hears mm-hmm. about Gretir's death. Uh, but Thorstein has to be careful now. If he attacks Hook openly, then he risks getting himself outlawed. Now, don't you think people would understand when they hear what actually happened? Maybe, but Hook, if I may call him Hook now, sure. uh, he's he's turned, since he's a true villain, Um <laughs> He's turned his newfound fame into power and influence rather quickly. And if this saga's shown anything, it's that the law can be somewhat unfair at times, especially when uh, men with power are uh, wielding it. So Thorstein doesn't want to risk endangering himself in this context.
0: Well, yes, but also I think we need to remember that Thorstein isn't a warrior by nature, right? He's not, he doesn't have this background of running around killing people uh, the way his brother does. Although we'll see. Uh, Well, right. Uh, but whatever his motivations, Thorstein decides to play it cool for a little while, although he does begin tracking Hook's movements, waiting mm-hmm. for the moment to act. Yeah. And it isn't long before Hook learns that Greter has a brother in Norway. And this news doesn't sit well with him, obviously, because he's kind of a coward, and his cowardly nature resurfaces at the mere suggestion of danger.
1: So much for the pretense of bravery, huh? Well. But uh, he isn't too obvious about his motives for leaving Norway. Hook starts asking around about what opportunities might exist for a guy like him. And since people assume that he's a heroic adventurer type, wrongly, they suggest yeah. that he consider joining the Varangian Guard down in Constantinople. Mm-hmm. That sounds reasonably far enough away from Scandinavia to protect him from Greta's family. So Hook immediately agrees, packs up his things, and begins the journey to Constantinople, not Istanbul.
0: See, now, okay, I can't make puns. but uh, Now, <laughs> I know we've mentioned the Varangian Guard before, but I can never pass an opportunity to talk about them again.
1: So let's do it. All right. So let me get this straight. You want to talk about how the Varangian Guard was an elite band of mercenaries recruited from the best of the best in Scandinavia to protect the Byzantine Emperor? I do, and don't think <laughs> I don't see what you're doing there. What? Uh, are you going to also get into how they were formed out of a mercenary band uh, hired by Vladimir the Great of Russia in the late 10th century? Oh, now,
0: okay, I wasn't even going to go back that far.
1: <laughs> I just wanted to say that there, this is a group bound by an oath
0: to serve the emperor and attend him. Mm-hmm. And that they were preferred because of how seriously they took their oaths. Remember, medieval Byzantium was a very dangerous place, and they put a real
1: premium on people keeping their word. I think that more than covers it. In short... They were one of the baddest groups of soldiers in the Middle Ages, and Hook arrives to join them during the reign of Michael Catalactus and Emperor Zoe. And their story is extremely interesting, but I won't fall victim to their digressive siren song <laughs> here. If you want to know more about them, then maybe pick up a copy of King Harold's saga Hardrada. It's one of the more entertaining sagas that you can hope to read. So, Oh, definitely,
0: yeah. Now,
1: um so Thorstein
0: Droman has been tracking Hook's movements, and then he learns that Hook has fled to Constantinople not Istanbul.
1: Uh, (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) He hands his property over to his relatives, books passage on a ship, and begins his pursuit of his brother's
1: killer. Now, can you imagine the look on his face when he found out where (laughs) Hook was headed? (laughs) You'd be like, Constantinople? Are Are you serious? Uh... (laughs) The Constantinople? Please, tell me there's a Constantinople in Finland. Come on! I know. I I just uh, imagine Thorstein had a pretty nice life there in Norway, and now he's got to flush it all down and chase Thorbjorn Hook to Constantinople.
0: But to his credit, he doesn't waste any time. He Mm -hmm. jumps from port to port
1: all the way down, always looking for Hook and being one step behind him and never quite catching up. That's right. But he does know exactly where Hook is going, assuming that Hook doesn't get too afraid and change his course. Um, and when he arrives in Constantinople, he uh, he intends to settle matters fairly quickly. Uh, but there is one tiny problem, though. No, it's actually kind of a big problem. Yeah. He, he doesn't know what Thorbjorn Hook looks like. He's never even seen the guy, right. never met him. <laughs> no idea what he looks like. So Thorstein finds himself in one of the world's biggest cities, All alone and
0: with no idea what the guy he wants to kill looks like. It's not the best plan.
1: No. Uh, and, And how has he been tracking this guy this whole time if he doesn't know what he looks like? How do you even ask?
0: Well, I mean, Hook does have one eye missing. So maybe he at least knows that much.
1: Sure, but I imagine asking everyone if they've seen a one-eyed man in the Middle Ages wouldn't exactly narrow the field too much. I mean there are a lot of guys walking around with battle scars, not to mention horrible infections. I what? Uh, a one-eyed man's probably a dime a dozen in port cities. You know, you're not really doing a lot to sell the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well it
0: doesn't really matter because regardless of what kind of disfiguring diseases everyone might have
1: Uh, (laughs) Not everyone. Thorstein finds out
0: fairly quickly that the Vrongian Guard is preparing an expedition to repel an invading army. Mm. And it's uh, it's the tradition, at least according to the saga, that every soldier in the Guard, any prospective soldiers who wanted to campaign with them, would gather for a kind of weapons inspection. Oh, really? That's rather convenient. It certainly is.
1: Now, Thorstein feels confident that Hook will be there. And that's actually uh, a point in Hook's favor. I mean, he's the consummate coward, and yet here he is preparing to go to war with the Varangian guard. You're presumably planning on standing in the back. But I have to say I'm I'm surprised
0: that he even showed up.
1: Well, let's not get too proud of him. Um when the weapons inspection begins, guess which sword he presents for inspection? Uh see, is it gonna be a cutlass or a short sword? <laughs> well, that all depends on your perspective and definition of each word, but, but you're right. He uh he presents Gretir's short sword. Uh, and everyone around him is amazed by this unusual sword. Uh, and before you know it, he's passing this thing around and letting everyone admire it. And when they ask how he got it and where the notch in the blade came from, well, he's more than happy to tell his story. Right. And, you know, just like in Norway, he doesn't really
0: tell the full story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, it has the, the same effect that did Norway.
1: Right. And here's here's his version of the story. I slew the warrior, called Grettir the Strong, who was the greatest champion there and hero, for no one was able to defeat him until I came along. And since it was granted to me to beat him, I got the better of Grettir. And yet, he had many times my strength. I then struck at his massive head with the short sword, and it broke the notch in the edge that you see before you. And at last, Greta the outlaw
0: was dead. Well, everyone listening is really impressed, except for Thorstein. Yes. Because as it happens, he's actually standing in the group of men listening. <laughs> uh, and of course, now he knows that Gretter's killer is right in front of him. And Thorstein asks if he can see the pretty sword. Uh, And of course, since everybody else has been passing the sword around, Hook has no problem with letting the slender-armed Thorstein have a turn.
1: But those slender arms are about to fulfill a prophecy, are they not?
0: Oh yes, Mm. in the most dramatic fashion. As soon as he has Gretor's short sword in his hand, he raises it up and plunges the blade into Hook's head so deeply that it comes to rest in his teeth.
1: (laughs) And that is the end. Which is just such a grim addition to the text. It sure is. That's the end of Thorbjorn Hook. Uh-huh. It's an inglorious end to a rather inglorious life and uh, a very fitting end to this saga. Greta has been avenged and all is right with the world. oh and- wait, wait. Yeah? Don't try to sneak out of this
0: now. <laughs> you know very well this is only the first chapter of the epilogue. Oh, yeah. We haven't covered
1: anything yet. We got a ways to go before we finish. Don't we, though? Uh, but this is the point in the saga where the tone shifts and everything we've come to know and expect from saga literature changes.
0: The Spacefather aka The Story of Hope
1: Eight warriors failed to pull the short sword from brave Greta's grip So then they were obliged to cut off the hand of my seafaring brother The saga's already shifted from the bleak plateau of Drangi to the exotic world of Constantinople, but the avenging of Greta was still a fitting part of that saga narrative. What happens after Thorstein avenges his brother is so completely different in tone and style from the rest of the saga that scholars long considered it to be a later addition by another author. Right, but
0: most now consider it to be the work of the Greter Saga author. It's just appended on. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of reasons for this, uh, some of which involve a complex process of dating the manuscripts, analyzing the internal linguistic evidence, and some good old-fashioned investigative literary history. Uh, We're going to spare you all that and say only that the current theory puts the author in the late 14th or early 15th century and is the author of the entire text. Is that right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with the mid to late 14th century but mm-hmm. putting greta's saga in the 15th century makes it almost exactly contemporary with the surviving manuscripts and i don't know why that i'm not as comfortable with that i don't have a good reason but i'm not
0: well it's just one theory right like okay. i said the dating of medieval texts is often a very messy affair uh but i think it's fascinating to think that the greta's saga author and chaucer are contemporaries
1: wow i never really thought of that that is cool
0: And and if the saga was
1: written in that time period, it really offers a unique perspective on saga writing. I know we mentioned in part one that uh, Jonas Christensen felt that Greta Saga is a good example of saga writing in decline. You can Um, remember back that far? (laughs) Yeah, I do, surprisingly. And at that time, I was more inclined to agree with him, but... Honestly, at this stage, I'm not so sure. There, there's something really fascinating going on in this saga in terms of what the author's doing with genre. Um, and the epilogue is a great example of this in action. Uh, there, there's definitely an aesthetic shock here that that's quite jarring, but uh, I think Catherine Hume suggests our best chance of understanding its relation to the rest may lie not in minimizing the aesthetic shock, but in accepting it as deliberate. Hmm. And I, I really think she may be onto something. Okay, okay, but uh, let's explain what happens in the epilogue before we get too deep into talking about how it works. Okay, sure. Uh, so let's back up to the moment uh, of Thorbjorn Hook's uh, rather sudden and skull-splitting end. Right,
0: now, out of context, we have to remember what everybody else is seeing. Right Out of context, Thorstein Droman's sudden and spectacularly violent attack on Hook, it catches everybody in the Varangians off guard and horrifies them.
1: And it's understandable that it would. One minute they're admiring the sword and gazing upon this newfound hero of Iceland, and then the next they're looking at his brains dripping down his shirt. So <laughs> you can understand why they'd be a little disturbed. Certainly. Uh So the sheriff is called, and Thorstein is immediately arrested. Wait, did you say sheriff? I mean, there aren't sheriffs in the sagas. Where, where does this guy come from? Well, but that's the point, right? We're not in the world of the sagas anymore. Mm-hmm. We've just jumped
0: dramatically into... The world of the author and his audience right into the modern or contemporary world yeah this is a place with laws enforced by sheriffs
1: yeah and a vengeance killing may be a noble deed in this world but it's still it's by this time it's an antiquated concept yeah. in a modern christian society thorstein tries to explain that he was avenging his brother Grettir, mm-hmm. and the men are sympathetic to that but with no one there to support his claims he's given a death sentence and thrown into a dungeon until someone comes along to purchase his freedom, or until he dies there. Right, and his prospects,
0: we have to say, look pretty grim, because of course, nobody knows he's there. Yeah. He didn't have time to sort of arrange for anyone to follow him. And when he arrives in the dungeon, he's greeted by a very old man. Picture the stereotypical white-haired, long-bearded, skinny old man in shackles. you got a pretty good sense of this guy. The mere image of him should give Thorstein a fair idea of his prospects for getting out, Unless, of course, Thorstein's able to use his skinny arms to, like, sneak
1: out of the manacles. <laughs> but, you know, Thorstein's not phased by this old man and his bad attitude. He simply responds to the prisoner's pessimism by saying, there's much one can do in a difficult situation. Let's be cheerful and do something to entertain ourselves. Uh, I suppose you have to admire his optimism, but that kind of thing would be annoying if you're stuck in a prison. Yeah, well, the old man doesn't uh, admire mm-hmm. his optimism. He says there's nothing that could cheer him up. After so many years in this prison. But
0: Thorstein's unrelentingly positive attitude is infectious. Yeah. And when he starts
1: chanting a poem, his beautiful voice affects the old prisoner and lifts his spirits. Now, this is one of those jarring moments of the epilogue where we're confronted with a character whose entire outlook stands in stark contrast from that of Grettir. And by this point in the saga, we spent so much time with the negative, brooding, and antisocial Grettir that the shiny disposition of Thorstein might catch us off guard.
0: Well, perhaps.
1: Thorstein is a new kind of hero, right? He's, he's a hero from a different genre. He's born of the romance tradition. Exactly. And the groundwork for this contrast is laid at the very start of the saga, actually, way, way, way back in chapter 13 when Thorstein was first born. And we get a description of him there, if you remember. Uh, no, I don't, offhand. Why do you? <laughs> uh, because for once, I'm prepared. I went way overboard well, on this one. I'm impressed. Go on. <laughs> uh, so the saga says, he was the most handsome of men and a strong man with a very fine voice tall in stature, but rather slow in his movements. Mm. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about that last part in the nicknames portion of our Judgment section, but yep. for now, let's focus on his good looks and his fine voice. Well, we've run into this kind of thing a
0: lot in the sagas, actually. I mean, you think of um Ail and Thorolf Skala Grimson, who we haven't gotten to yet, but brothers are often contrasted in terms of their physical qualities or their personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you also to notice that the saga hero is rarely the kinder and more attractive one. For all his personality quirks, Greta is still the kind of guy the saga's like. He's a lot
1: of fun. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that. But he is, to be honest, he's only fun from a distance. You know, I don't want to hang out with a guy. <laughs> but I, I would, however, be happy to share a prison cell with Thorstein. I mean, just look at how he turned around that miserable old prisoner. Pretty impressive. What? Yeah, no, Greta couldn't have pulled that off. He's got a terrible singing voice. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, Thorstein's able to play the social game that Grettir so miserably fails at time and again. And I think that makes all the difference. I feel like I need to sing in Greta's voice now. <laughs> <In Greece. laughs>
0: Istanbul and the Constantinople, that's Istanbul. Right, right. Now, Thorstein is singing his heart out in a prison cell. And it's not just one song. He keeps singing all evening long.
1: Okay, now, if I were that old man, (laughs) I might begin wondering just what kind of lunatic had been thrown in with me.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I could probably take a song or two. But at some point, I'd have to start thinking Thorstein had been put in the cell just to torture me.
1: (laughs) Uh, But he's singing away, happy as a lark. And the prisoner seems at least moved by the whole thing. Yeah, well, it's a distraction, at least. I mean, I'm sure he's mm-hmm. pretty sick of staring at a wall and talking to himself.
0: Well, and meanwhile, the saga now shifts perspective and takes us outside the cell
1: to introduce a new character. It's a noble lady from a wealthy and respected family in the city. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you can stop there. I think everyone in our audience already knows exactly how this whole thing is going to play out. Well, right. And that's exactly the problem with romance narratives.
0: But let's play it out. So this okay. woman is is named Space, which is Latin for hope.
1: We're laying on a little thick with that name, aren't we? Yeah, just a little. Now, <laughs> I'm I'm betting you weren't expecting this. What's that? Space is married. Oh, you don't say. Oh, I, I'm going to bet that it's a very happy marriage. She's content. Uh, no, obviously. <laughs> uh, she's married to a man named Cigarette. Uh, he's very wealthy, but Space feels that he's beneath her. I see. Now, is she a uh, a high-spirited and independent woman? Oh, well, yes, she is. Have you heard this story somewhere before? Well, you know, I read this whole thing a few times, but the, the point we're trying to make here with this little play acting of ours is that we've slipped into a rather predictable world of the romance genre. I mean, anyone who's familiar with the Arthurian tradition, with Tristan and Isolde, uh, or any other medieval romance will immediately recognize the motifs at play in this section of the saga— You already know that Space and Thorstein will get together, and while it might disappoint the reader to know that the saga author doesn't play with this genre by deviating from norms, it's worth noting that the romantic epilogue plays an important role in the saga by virtue of the motifs it's actually using. So, let's get these two lovebirds together.
0: Okay, Space is walking along the street with her servants, and when they pass by the dungeon she hears Thorstein singing in a beautiful voice. She immediately tells her servants to rush over and find out who's singing. Thorstein explains the situation through a small window, wisely noting that he's doomed to rot in prison unless someone purchases his freedom.
1: (laughs) Smart move, Thorstein. Now, (laughs) Space is intrigued by this, so she moves in and asks him why he's so cruelly imprisoned. And then Thorstein tells her the story of Greta's death and the vengeance against Thorbjorn Hook. Now Thorstein's bravery and his loyalty to his beloved brother move space deeply. And why wouldn't she be moved? Thorstein comes off pretty well in this encounter. Mm-hmm. The man
0: crossed an ocean, or at least circumnavigated a continent, to yeah. avenge his brother.
1: Plus, he's got that sweet voice and that charming disposition. Right, and there's a really interesting moment here where space asks Thorstein to tell her about Grettir, and he offers her a poem in response. Right, and that's the poem that you open, open the section with. That's right, but we use a simpler translation of the poem there. This poem's far more complicated and brilliantly constructed than the translation suggests. Remember, we're dealing with Scaldic poetry here. Oh, have you got another translation? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. I suspected you did. Let's hear it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, now, this one comes from Anthony Falk's translation for uh, Everyman Press. It reads like this, and I'm going to um, interrupt uh, this with the uh, explanations of the different kennings. So here's how it sounds. Eight edge moots makers, that's to say warriors, could not ringsgrund the lady, i.e. space, from bold spirited Gretor's hand take the cutlass, until all virtuous fasteners of sword belts girding, another warrior kenning, struck shoulder leg from courage bold wave horse urger. A warrior, in this case Gretor. That's right.
0: Okay, so I think I see where you're going with this. Falk's translation preserves something of the complex syntax,
1: the vocabulary, and the elusiveness of Thorstein's poem. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, But I'm far more interested in the response to the poem. The author notes that several of Space's servants thought the poem a very splendid thing. Mm. But he also notes that Space herself did not understand the poem until after some of her servants explained it to her. And only then did she offer to save Thorstein's life.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh, it does add a degree of realism to the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Space is from a noble family in Constantinople. Right? She only speaks Norse because she's married to Sigurd, who's presumably a Norwegian
1: based on his name. Uh, that's good attention to detail. Sure, but I think that's only scratching the surface. I got that too. But I wonder if this moment is meant to highlight yet another difference between the saga author's audience and the saga age itself. We already spoke about how Grettir is a heroic character born in an age when changing values made his particular set of skills kind of obsolete. Now I think the poet's doing something similar here. He situates the saga's most carefully constructed and brilliant skaldic poem in the midst of a romance narrative. And in the midst of a romance narrative, noting as he does that space, the romance heroine is incapable of understanding it. And while that's realistic, as you say, because of her situation... I think the author's interested in the shifting tastes of his audience. Because by the time that the Greta Saga author put pen to paper, skaldic poetry's in decline. It had been in decline since the start of the 14th century. Now, but you're not saying that the Icelanders turned their back on skaldic poetry, are you? No, not exactly. Um, you can find good skaldic poetry from that period, but it's definitely a form in transition as Christian poets seek to plumb the depths of Christian mythology for their kennings. Um, but more important is the fact that the skaldic poems were competing with new literary forms. Now, I had to do a little bit of digging to confirm my suspicions about what the greater saga author's up to here, but I found confirmation in Margaret Clooney's Ro- Margaret Clooney's Ross's book, A History of Old Norse Poetry and Poetics. What's that about? The title kind of gives it away, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly Um, It's a great book, actually And I I wish I'd known about it a long time ago It would have made uh, some of my work with the Virgin Mary poems a little bit easier Mm. But anyway, she confirmed for me that the mid-14th century Was, in fact, a period of decline for Scaldic poetry Just as the heroic world of the sagas Was being absorbed into the romantic world of the the romances uh, (laughs) Quite a word choice there I hope
0: you're not quoting (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, that was my own bumbling original phrasing there I say carry on Okay, so the two most popular emerging forms of poetry were the Rimer and the Ballads Both of which are heavily influenced by literary trends outside of Scandinavia now I'm going to spare you a lengthy discussion on the subject And refer you to Clooney's Ross for the Riemer And to uh, Vestin Olesen for for the Ballads right. And all this is part of a
0: broader effort of Norway To enter into the rapidly changing world of medieval European culture
1: yeah, quite possibly, though, you know, I'm going to hesitate to say that it's just the result of a campaign to modernize Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. The The literary production of medieval Europe had been blossoming and producing some rather impressive works for over a century. So why shouldn't Scandinavia get caught up in that? Sure, no, that's fair. So the point of this lengthy digression, if I can try to get us back on track, is that the author of Gretaire Saga seems to be aware of the shifting trends in popular Scandinavian poetry. Space, I think, represents the late 14th century audience's who could not appreciate Skaldic poetry without a little help and guidance. And this is where the author is really brilliant, if I'm right. He might even be projecting into the near future when Skaldic poetry will be so antiquated that it sounds just as strange, out of order, and confusing to Scandinavian audiences as it might to modern English-speaking audiences reading fairly literal translations. Or he might just be saying that Thorstein is a better poet than Greta. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> but no, it's true. really interesting. I mean, there's a real possibility there. Thank you. So, you know, my thoughts on the subject go deeper since the evolution of the Reamer and the decline of Scaldic poetry aren't as clear cut as I'm making out here for the podcast. But I, I think the general point still works. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to put that one on my list of articles to write uh, inspired by our little saga thing journey here. All right. I'm right, right, moving back to the story now. Mm-hmm. We really need to hold off on the digressions and get through this. We're, we're barely two chapters in. <laughs> yeah sorry about that you know i like i said i'll take the blame for distracting us with interesting insights and uh, informative discussions so. oh dear please don't don't bother <laughs> now as you said uh, space is so moved by the poem
0: and by thorstein's noble bearing and noodley arms that she offers to purchase his freedom <laughs> but thorstein ever a shiny example of chivalry insists that he won't leave the
1: prison without his bosom companion what companion is he suddenly in there with his trusty squire or something no, he's talking about the withered old man that he's been singing to in the prison. Yeah, for like four hours. He's <laughs> hardly been there. You know, if I were Space, I would just turn and walk away from this guy. He's clearly a lunatic. Well, or he's exceedingly good-natured. But Space is surprised, and she does say, I think you're a better bargain than he is. <laughs> Which That's a great line. That's quite possibly a good notable witticism. Uh, yes, uh, but she does exactly as Thorstein suggests and arranges for both men to be released. And the old man must now become Thorstein's trusted companion and Squire. It makes good sense. <laughs> no, he's out of the story completely.
0: Oh, great. Uh, hopefully he, uh presumably he runs down the street <laughs> to get away from Thorstein's thing. <laughs> right. uh, no, he presumably lives out the remainder of his life, short though it must be, happily enjoying his freedom. And let's be honest here. Why would Thorstein want a broken old Squire like this guy? Well, you know, I imagine after a shave and a shower, he might
1: be quite impressive. Well, he's a little malnourished. I mean, hardly a uh, worthy champion's companion. Okay, a shave, a shower, and maybe a good meal or two, some exercise. Then, (laughs) you know, the two would be a fearsome force. I think Thorstein's a pretty fearsome force all by himself. After being
0: released, he uh, rejoins the Varangian Guard, uh, and this time officially joins them, and
1: proves to be one of their most courageous and fierce soldiers. Does it bother you at all that the saga author drops the name of Harold Hardrada into the narrative at this point? No, I can't really start
0: objecting now. I mean, by this time he spent most of the saga creating episodes just so he can drop in the names of giants from saga literature. At this point, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not surprised that he drops in Harold Ardrada.
1: I'm surprised he doesn't manage to find a way to get Knut in there. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, you. But I I didn't. To be fair, I didn't ask if you were surprised. I asked if it bothered you. I mean, he introduces one of the coolest guys in all of saga literature into the narrative. Uh, This is a guy who fled Norway under duress joined the Varangian Guard, conquered and pillaged everywhere he went, returned to Norway, reclaimed his throne, ruled well for years, and then out with a bang at Stamford Bridge in England in 1066. And Harold Hardrada's is only mentioned in passing here? That's what bothers me, John. So you're saying that you'd rather
0: go adventuring with Harold and Thorstein than witness the blossoming romance of Thorstein in space? Yes, that's what Well, I'm that's saying. an entirely different genre. We're <laughs> in the medieval romances now, pal. It's all about adultery, misdirection, passionate feelings now.
1: Oh, we're so far away from the world of Gretchen, <laughs> aren't we?
0: We really are. But that's the point we've been trying to make with this epilogue all along. Right? While Thorstein may be a companion on Harold Hardrada's Varangian adventures, we don't learn anything about that. Instead, as Andy is lamenting, we are diving into the depths of Thorstein and Space's love affair.
1: Now, it's unclear to me if the two consummate their love in these early stages, but that's often the case with these romance couples. There, there's usually a lengthy and elaborate courtship, frequently in secret as it is here. Yeah. And as you may have noticed some
0: parallels in Greta's saga with the heroic literature of early medieval Europe, you'll also notice some very distinct parallels here with the most popular continental romances of late medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. It's not going to get genius to figure out the model for space and Thorstein's love affair is probably the story of Tristan and Assault. Oh, very good. I'm glad you didn't say Lancelot and Guinevere there. Oh, I've been around the block a few times, my friend. Uh, I know how Tristan and Assault's love affair influenced the development of the Arthurian legend. Well, good for you. Nicely done. <laughs> and Now, keep going. Uh, no, the, I mean, in this case, the parallels are pretty obvious. We're talking about some reasonably obscure stuff, but this is pretty straightforward. Uh, Sigurth, Space's husband, is the King Mark of this story. Uh, like Mark, he's in a loveless marriage. Uh, Sigurth is married to space for money and influence, which she often reminds him of when
1: he complains about her lack of attention. And that makes space and Thorstein our Tristan and Isolde. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then this saga is about to get even more depressing than it was when Gretir died.
0: <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Just because the story. author is borrowing types and episodes from the
1: romance tradition, it doesn't mean he's copying them outright. True. Okay. And fortunately, he doesn't go that far with it here. He's just right. borrowing episodes um, and motifs. So, uh, Space and Thorstein are probably going to be fine, I hope. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, but just like in your average romance, Space and Thorstein meet
0: frequently in private. Uh, Sigurd starts to get suspicious when he starts to notice her strange behavior. Uh, he confronts her, accusing her of overspending, wandering about as if in a dream, ignoring him, and taking too much private time.
1: And these are fair accusations. Remember, she's taken Thorstein in and she's providing for him privately by drawing on her husband's wealth.
0: Right, But, of course, she's going to be clever here. She rebuffs the accusations by reminding him that she never wanted to marry him in the first place. So he shouldn't be surprised if she's a little distant. (laughs) But she also presses him to be a little more forward in his accusations because she needs to know whether he suspects
1: her of adultery yet. And he takes the bait saying... I'm not without suspicion that you are keeping some man that you like more than me. Now, to which she responds, and I think rather
0: deftly, I do not know that there is much reason for that. But yet I would think that you cannot support what you say with any proofs. But the two of us are not going to talk
1: together alone if you are accusing me of this perfidy. Now, first of all, that is such a convincing woman's voice that I almost forgot that you were John Sexton. Thank you. (laughs) Now, she's very clever here. The whole conversation's manipulated by her to see whether or not she's in trouble. And knowing that he has no proof, she can then shame him for being a jealous and paranoid husband, which mm-hmm. kind of makes me a little sad because he's right. I mean, the husbands in these <laughs> stories are almost always right, and, and yet they're made out to be the bad guys. Well, the tradition of secular marriage is under attack
0: in these romances, right? So it's not a tremendous surprise the dominant male figure would be cast in a negative light. That's true. And, of course, also, you know, we aren't supposed to side with the cuckold. That's right. But, of course, Sigurd, who doesn't want to be the cuckold, isn't going to give up so easily. Sometime later, Thorstein and Space are together for an evening in her private room when they hear men storming up the stairs. And <laughs> that's the mistake quiet. right there, storming up the stairs. Yeah,
1: you just kind of <laughs> keep it quiet. Take <laughs> tip your shoes toe, off. Tiptoe, on flannel feet.
0: Yes. Uh, Space has locked her doors which gives her just enough time to hide Thorstein in a large chest. (laughs) Sigurd and his men break the lock and force their way into the room,
1: but they fail to find anyone but space inside. (laughs) That's crazy. Look at the chest. It's big. It fits a guy.
0: Alone in a room with a gigantic chest. (laughs) I
1: wonder what's going on here. (laughs) Where could he be? I'm flummoxed. (laughs) (laughs) so uh while they search uh space gets another great line off here when Sigurd says that he heard voices in the room and asks where's this man who was most letting himself go with his voice just now i expect you think he's got a better voice than i do then space jabs back with a well chosen proverb no one looks entirely foolish if he can keep his mouth shut yeah she's really sharp you gotta get you kind of have to get to like her as you get to know her yeah, I, mean, I I definitely like her. She certainly doesn't back down in a fight, and and here I think there's there's more of an Icelandic saga heroine in her than the traditional romance heroine.
0: I don't know. sold and Guinevere
1: can be quite saucy when they're pressed. <laughs> That's true. They can. Um and and these little unexpected visits. Uh, from Sigurd and the hostile exchanges, mm-hmm. they they continue for quite some time. Uh, one time she hides Thorstein under some clothes. Another time she sends him uh, through a trap door that conveniently appeared in the floor of her room.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Let's make this absolutely clear. She hides Thorstein under some clothes and Sigurd can't find
1: him. Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, he's just under some clothes, <laughs> leaning against a pile of cloth in a closet. <laughs> well,
0: how bad are Sigurd's men at searching her room? I don't know. Right. Uh, pretty bad. My three year old son would love to play hide and seek with this guy. I, I get that the trap door would work, but how do they not open the large chest in her room that first time? And how in the name of all Told do they not see the man
1: shaped figure draped in a cloth standing in the corner? I don't know. It's, it's about as ridiculous as it gets, but, but I guess this shows just how their love is meant to be or, or something. Yeah.
0: I guess. So, uh, Sigurd and Space argue for a while in the clothes closet. Uh, and in the end, presumably while he's leaning on the pile of clothes.
1: Right.
0: Uh, in the end, he insists that she clear herself of the accusations against her. Not only has he witnessed her with Thorstein, but other men have as well. They just haven't been able to catch them in the act.
1: Right. And, and she's, for some reason, more than eager to prove her innocence by going in front of a bishop and then swearing an oath.
0: Now let's get this straight. She's Definitely seeing Thorstein behind her husband's back, right?
1: Most definitely. And she wants to swear an oath in front of a bishop. Yes, she does. But I think you're familiar with this motif in the Romance of Tristan and Isolde.
0: Well, I mean, yes, but I'm I'm (laughs) explaining it for effect.
1: Oh, sorry. (laughs) So,
0: Space and Sigurð meet with the bishop. Mm -hmm. He arranges for Space to clear her name with a formal oath. She's going to swear in public on a specified date. Okay. And this satisfies her husband sufficiently for now, and space runs home to plan out her oath with Thorstein. (laughs) Of course she does. (laughs)
1: The Equivocal Oath So, the morning comes for her to swear her oath, and it's a miserable, rainy day. The paths to the church where she'll swear her oath are all wet, but she makes her way there with a large group of friends and family. And because of the recent rains, there's a wide, muddy ditch in front of the church that she'll have to cross. It's rather convenient for her that it's raining, isn't it? And the
0: church is Mm. surrounded by a gathering of people who want to see the event. And among them, of course, are a few poor beggars asking for alms. One of these beggars stands out from the others. He's a large man with a long beard and most definitely not at all like Thorstein in any way in appearance.
1: No, of of course not. Thorstein is slender and beardless. It's definitely not Thorstein. Nope, definitely not Thorstein. Just a big beggar with a beard. And this big
0: beggar with a beard notices Space approaching the ditch. And he asks Space
1: if she will allow him to carry her across the dirty ditch. And her reply suggests that something's missing from the narrative here. It's kind of interesting. Does it? Yes, yes. She says... How can you carry me properly when you cannot carry yourself? Now, what have we seen in the narrative that would suggest that he can't carry himself? There's nothing here. I challenge you to go look and find something. But if you remember the scene Mm -hmm. from Tristan and Isolde that inspired this whole Mm -hmm. moment in the epilogue, Tristan's dressed as a beggar and we see him making a fool of himself as Isolde arrives to swear her oath. He looks shaky and very ill, with bumps all over his face, and I think he even slipped around yeah, in the mud. Right,
0: that's right.
1: Although I don't think he actually slips.
0: Right, it's all the noblemen coming to court who slip in the mud and get filthy. Mm. Tristram is disguising that's himself right. as a leper, and he sits on a little mound nearby where he can shout at all the noblemen as they sink in the mud.
1: That's right, and and he even managed to get uh, King Arthur to give him his gaiters as alms. Yeah, it's he? a
0: great scene, and and I guess this is definitely where the author
1: of Greater Saga got the inspiration for it. Absolutely. Wow. But uh, he forgets to play up Thorstein as the wise fool before space uh-huh. arrives. And all we know is that he's big and bearded. So why would she say he doesn't look like he can carry himself if there's nothing offered to suggest that this is the right. case? So this is
0: a situation where the author is condensing his
1: source so much that he actually leaves out some important information. I think so. Uh, but it's no big deal. The most important part here. Uh, uh, the most important parts are still there he offers to carry space across the ditch she agrees and then climbs on his back this
0: is where the saga author actually does a bit more than the original Tristan carries his soul across the ditch with relative ease as she rides him like a horse Mm -hmm. here Thorsten really plays up his role as an oafish beggar Uh, we now find out that he has two crutches and he uses these to help him shuffle through the mud when he gets to the middle he sways back and forth as if he's about to drop her
1: Right, and then she tells him, this will be the worst trip you've ever undertaken if you drop me in there. (laughs) (laughs) I I love her spunky You really
0: wonder if he's sort of messing with her in that moment. Uh, He makes a big show struggling to get her across, and right as he gets to the far end, he tosses her up onto the bank. Uh, But in doing so, he slips and falls into the ditch
1: up to his armpits in the mud. And then as he lays there, he reaches out with his mud-covered hand to grasp at space. Somehow, he gets his hand under her clothes and manages to touch her above the knee, leaving a muddy print on her bare thigh. She's, of course, outraged by this and curses the beggar as a wretch, but eventually offers him some gold as alms for the trouble she caused him. And then she enters the church to swear her oath. And rather than tell you what she says in the church, we'll simply tell you that she phrases things in such a way that she's neither lying nor exposing herself as an adulteress. So if you're curious what she says, go pick up a copy of Greta's Saga and check it out for yourself. Or the Romance of Tristam. It's basically the same text. Ah, but
0: which version? Are we talking Berules, Tristan? Mallory? Tom? Why not try the Norse version? The
1: Saga of Tristam och Isondor by Brother Robert. (laughs) There you go. That's a great recommendation. Uh, and that's probably what the, this author is using. Um, if, if you're interested in Norse romances, you can't do better than that mm-hmm. one, Tristram's Saga. It's based on Thomas of Britain's lost version of the legend, and uh, it's quite brilliant. Uh, and I think uh, you can get a good translation of it by Paul Schock for mere pennies on the dollar. And just as an aside, and, uh, it contains
0: uh, this uh, great feature. It's a pretty uh, faithful tra- translation of Tristan and Assault. Uh, but one of the ways that you know it's set in Scandinavia is that whenever they talk about a ship's hold, it's always full of herring. <laughs> it's just the sort of little addition they do for the Norse version.
1: Yeah, this must be a Scandinavian <laughs> narrative. We'll put some herring in it. Anyway, I'll, I'll provide a link to uh, Paul Schock's translation on our webpage if you're interested. Um, now, uh, John, what happens after space so brilliantly evades justice through her ambiguously phrased oath?
0: Well, it's time for space's revenge. Uh Because it's a slight on a woman's honor to be accused of adultery, the crowd is pretty worked up about her husband making what appears to be a false accusation, and they help her to press for a divorce from Sigurd on the spot.
1: Wait a minute. Now, I know how medieval justice works in these stories, but it it always shocks me that she can clear her name simply by saying, I didn't do it in front of a bishop. Well, to a modern audience, that might sound odd, but
0: it's not so hard to believe if you account for... Well, the deep faith of the audience.
1: Or, or the assumed deep faith yes, of the audience. Yes, okay. Uh,
0: but the point is, she treats the oath very seriously. She doesn't lie to the bishop or to God. Everything she says is true, which suggests that she's not really messing around here. She's just sort of being clever with her words. She understands mm-hmm. the severe penalty of lying under oath in church. It comes with a much worse sentence than contempt or perjury or anything like that. She'd face damnation.
1: She's not about to stand here and lie. No, I I do get all that. But when I read these texts, I sometimes get the feeling that the author, even of the romances, isn't fully convinced by the whole damnation and hellfire Mm -hmm. routine of the church. I mean, surely not everyone throughout the Middle Ages was a believer, even if they did all go to church. Right. And I think that's probably fair. But we're just guessing.
0: Uh, Now, like we said, for uh, for now, uh, Space and his soul both take the oath
1: seriously enough not to lie. Yeah, not directly, and that's all I'm saying. Both are guilty Mm -hmm. and both get away with it. And poor Sigurd's humiliated for accusing his wife of doing exactly what she's been Mm -hmm. doing. And then the whole crowd and the church turn against him. And Space is able to leverage this victory into a divorce and basically ruins Sigurd, takes everything he has, and then gets him exiled. I mean, how is this justice? I ask you. I implore you. (laughs) You are outraged on behalf of the cuckolds of the
0: world, aren't you? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you know, the saga author is somewhat uncertain about the definition of justice in this case. Now, the Mm -hmm. Tristan narratives do more to idealize the two lovers. The Greta Saga author actually acknowledges that something is a little wrong with the way this turned out. Poor Sigurd, as you call him, loses everything despite the fact
1: that, as the author says, he had a just case. Exactly. The author says that Mm Sigurd had a just case, which gets me thinking that this saga is exploring the corruption of justice more deeply than we might recognize at first glance. There are a lot of injustices in this saga. I mean, the biggest one is perhaps, as you said earlier, Grettir's outlawry. The burning of Thorir's sons is an accident, and Grettir honestly has very little to do with it. Nevertheless, the legal system stacked against him by a powerful Gothi who's got enough influence to push the court case through without Grettir or other witnesses, ever being present to explain the situation. Mm -hmm. And in this case, space is able to manipulate the legal system with some trickery outside the church and then an ambiguous oath. The corruption of justice by people with influence and brains is a really big problem for this saga author. Well, and I think the author is aware of that. I mean, He describes the shifting opinion of the public after Sigurd's exile. Everyone
0: Mm -hmm. thinks space is a remarkable woman, but they do begin to suspect her of manipulating her oath to hide the truth of the matter. And mainly when Thorstein starts openly uh, courting her. Uh, and yeah. then, the author notes, people managed to discover that that beggar was none other than Thorstein, the man accused of seeing space behind Sigrid's back.
1: Yes, but what does it say at the end of Chapter 89? Uh, off the top of my head? I don't know. <laughs> well, look it up. Go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. Right. It's kind of right. interesting. Okay, um... Okay, it says it was discovered that the beggar
0: who had carried her over the ditch was Thorstein Dromond, but Sigurd did not manage to
1: win redress in the matter. There you go. Poor Sigurd gets no justice despite being exactly right. But you know what? What? Yeah, I, I can't blame Thorstein. <laughs> You know, it's that's kind of how these narratives work. I mean, who but the cuckolded husband is going to root for King Mark mm-hmm. or for Sigurd? Not me, I say. <laughs> I hope. Uh-huh. We we follow our hearts, which in this case is with the young lover. Right. We don't want space to be stuck for the rest of her life with a man she doesn't love. No, not me. And and Thorstein is a great guy. Not only is he eloquent and brave, he's also fiercely loyal. And extremely successful with the Varangians, and he's a favorite of Harold Hardrada. I mean, how could you? Yeah, and that? I love I love how the saga pauses to suggest the
0: plan with the ditch was actually Harold's plan and not Thorstein's. It's a nice Yeah, touch. it distances Thorstein from the planning a little bit. And it highlights how much this great hero
1: of Scandinavian history loved him. And I don't think it will surprise our audience to learn that Thorstein's eventually going to ask for the hand of space in Mm. marriage. She consents, but then defers to her family, which is in keeping with the state of betrothal customs in the late 14th and early 15th century in Iceland. Oh,
0: that's right. I forgot. You're kind of a budding expert in
1: late medieval Scandinavian (laughs) marriage and romance literature, aren't you? Hardly, hardly. I'm a dabbler. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm no Marianne Kalinka, uh, but I am interested in this subject for some reason. I don't know why.
0: Well... you to put together a uh, brief on that. Uh, but for sure, now, <laughs> Space and Thorstein are married. They live happily in Constantinople for two years until Thorstein gets the itch to return home to Norway. Mm-hmm. He sells all their property for a huge sum and books them passage on a boat for Scandinavia. Thorstein and
1: Space in Norway. Back in Norway, Thorstein and his wife are welcomed with open arms by his family. Uh, they settle down and begin a family together, um, living happily on their property for quite some time. Right. And Thorstein's remarkable luck continues to work in his favor. Which is, again, in stark contrast to the life of his unlucky brother, Gretchen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, at this time in Norway, King Magnus the Good is ruling. Hmm. I wonder if, that, I wonder if he's a nice guy. Well, Do you think? The nickname well, suggests it. So uh, what's Thorstein going to do with Magnus? They seem like a perfect match to me. (laughs) They are. Uh,
0: Thorstein is fairly famous in Norway for having traveled all the way down to Constantinople to avenge Greta the Strong. Uh, Was that
1: all you have to do? Yeah, well,
0: I I guess word got back. uh, Or he's been running around singing about it. Uh, Now, with his excellent reputation, Thorstein visits Magnus and enters
1: his service. And eventually, Harald Hardrada returns to Norway from his adventures with the Varangian Guard, and King Magnus gives him half a share of Norway. (laughs) Wow, he's really good. Why would he do that? (laughs) Good, foolish, whatever. Mm.
0: Uh, You can read all about this from Harald's perspective in the saga of King Harald Hardrada. Yes, again, one of my favorite sagas. Mm -hmm. I should also note that King Magnus probably didn't want to share Rule of Norway with Harald. Well, why would he? No, I mean, he—he's incredibly broke and he's near bankruptcy. He basically ah. sold half of Norway to
1: Harold. I see. Well, that makes a whole lot more sense. Too bad Thorstein couldn't give him better financial advice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're gonna—you're gonna leave that line there, are you? <laughs> you're, I don't know. You're I, I, let that I lie think... like a dead fish on the
1: floor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not—I'm not terribly impressed with it in <laughs> <have any> retrospect. <laughs>
0: Uh, now, interestingly, and entirely coincidentally, King Magnus <laughs> dies the summer
1: following King Harold's arrival. Oh, does he? Well, pardon me if I uh, think that sounds a little suspicious. Oh, I,
0: I don't think you'd be the only one to wonder
1: at that. But the, the convoluted
0: circumstances of Magnus' death, they aren't really terribly important to the epilogue of Grettir's saga. No. Uh, we're more concerned with how Thorstein is going to handle this transition in power.
1: Well, uh, without thinking too hard, I would assume that Thorstein would be happy about his distant relative and friend, Harald Hardrada, uh, becoming sole ruler of Norway. I mean, they did a lot of bonding down in Constantinople. Well, they did. I
0: mean, there was the occasional bro hug. But there's the small <laughs> the problem hey, of King Harold's You see I had with those birds? I had, to, I had those birds
1: flying. See the, that? Was, uh, caught, they caught the whole city on fire. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, you know where I, I, I understand
0: the reference. Yeah, uh, all, mm. But there's the small problem of King Harold's bad attitude. You know from reading this saga, he's rather a grumpy and cruel guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to hang out with a guy like that. No, and neither does Thorstein. Uh, he's
0: getting older, no. and he has little interest in serving a man with such a bad temper. People keep urging him to go and see Harold, but he always refuses. And that's when space suggests
1: that he go into the service of another king. Ooh. Is he going to Sweden? No. Okay. Is he going to England? It would be cool to see Thorstein hang out with King Edward the Confessor? It would, but no. He's not (laughs) going there either. He's not going to Japan, is he? I don't don't know how the Fujiwara (laughs) clan would feel about this guy. I I very much
0: doubt he has any knowledge of the Fujiwara clan or even of Japan. Okay, so uh, what king is he off to serve? You know, it would have been easier if you just asked me that in the first place. Uh,
1: <laughs> Space... No, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got to mention the Fujiwara. Fair point.
0: Space tells Thorstein that there is another king that they have been neglecting for far too long, following mm. their desires too much in their youth and disregarding their Christian duties.
1: Uh-huh, I get it. So they're getting older now. Mm-hmm. Things have gone really well for them, and they've had a, a, a pretty nice life. they got a good family. Now it's time to turn to matters of the spirit. That's right. She convinces Thorstein to leave Norway and set out for the palaces of the Pope. Because she believes that only there can their affairs be put right. Interesting. Now, do I detect some guilt for the way that she treated poor Sigurd? I think possibly you do. And again, I told you, she took that stuff seriously. She may
0: have manipulated the law, but she's still very aware of who's the ultimate judge waiting for her.
1: Very nice. And now, and this once again pits the failures of secular law against the righteousness of God's law. I, I kind of like that. Um, this this fits perfectly with the saga's concerns with the corruption of secular law. You know, focusing on true justice with a capital T and a capital J uh, at the end here forces us to reconsider the legal system depicted in the saga. In contrast, it's exposed as deeply flawed and subject to manipulation.
0: Now that's nicely put. Uh, now, when Thorstein announces their pending journey. His family's quite upset. They're they're worried about how the property's going to be run without them. They're especially concerned because Thorstein is at least 65 years old by now, and he's not likely to return from this journey. But Thorstein insists on traveling to Rome. Uh, So his family then begs space to stay in Norway with them and with her children, but she too
1: refuses. Yeah, and there's a very touching passage here where she explains her reasons. Uh, Do you mind if I read this? No, by all means. It's a beautiful moment. She expresses her love for Thorstein. It was for this reason that I travelled from foreign lands, and from Constantinople with Thorstein, and gave up both family and wealth, that I wished that we might always be together. Now, I have found it very pleasant here, but there will be nothing to tempt me to stay here long in Norway, or here in Scandinavia if he goes away. We have always got on well together, and there has been nothing to cause differences between us. Now we shall go, both of us, together. For it is we who know best about the many things that have taken place since we met.
0: See, that's great. And you notice mm-hmm. that she's still thinking about how they got together, right? That, that's right? that guilt is weighing on her. And she wants to do what's right to restore herself in God's eyes
1: before it's too late. And so Thorstein and Space make arrangements for their children, give a large portion of their wealth to the church, and then set off for Rome. At last, the end.
0: Now, the two lovers make their way to Rome without incident.
1: That's very lucky for them.
0: Well, they're kind of known for their luck, so it's not surprising. No. Uh, Now, when they get there, they immediately make their way to a confessor and explain the trickery they had used to arrange their marriage. The confessor is moved by their contrition and says that they have already done everything necessary to cleanse their souls. Oh, how nice.
1: He offers them absolution and wishes them a happy end to their lives. And if we weren't yet sure that the saga author isn't a big fan of the romance genre, he concludes with one final critique. Space then tells Thorstein that they have been very fortunate to have lived so well, but she wants to make sure that the foolish people who admire their actions don't look at their youth as something to imitate. She wants instead to end their lives by doing something worthy that other good people might want to imitate instead.
0: Ah, so, in other words, the romances, we're being told, teach an immoral
1: lesson. Yes, I think that's what's being said here. I mean, you can feel free to offer other suggestions if you have them. We're open to other interpretations. Um, go ahead and share your thoughts with us on Facebook or Twitter.
0: Yeah, uh, we love hearing what you guys think about the sagas we're discussing. Yeah. One of the reasons we started doing this was to start this conversation about the sagas with more people. In other words, we were tired of
1: just talking to each other about them.
0: Right. Right. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit harsh. Uh, This whole thing is based on us talking to each other. That's true. true. We only get to talk to our audience through social media.
1: All right. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap this thing up for real. We don't have much further to go here. Okay.
0: So, Space and Thorstein
1: have been given absolution from the Confessor in Rome.
0: Now, you'd think that would be enough, but no. They resolve to devote what life is left to them on Earth, worshiping God.
1: Yes. And how they choose to do this is pretty extreme. A little bit, yeah. Um, they use all their remaining money to build anchor cells in a church. In, in other words, they abandon secular society entirely and live out their days locked in cramped little cells praying.
0: Well, I don't know about cramped. I mean, the Ancrenois makes it pretty clear that these cells were often quite spacious and comfortable. and might even involve more than one room. But essentially, yes, becoming an anchorite means that you are dead to the world. You give up all earthly possessions and live a solitary life of spiritual devotion in your little cell.
1: Or a spacious cell, depending on well, what kind of right, cell you sure. build for yourself.
0: Absolutely. Sometimes these cells are sealed from the outside with bricks, basically enclosing the anchorite within the walls of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't go into a whole lot of detail about this right now, but the anchorite tradition in medieval Europe, it's pretty fascinating. Um, if you've never heard of this, I really recommend Googling the word anchorite. Uh, it's sp- spelled like a ship's anchor with I-T-E on the end. Um, You'll lose a good hour or so reading up on this, but you'll be better for it in the end.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now, like I said, sp- Thorstein and space are pretty extreme in their actions here. They're not just going to share their wealth with the churches and the poor. They're going to lock themselves up in separate cells and pray until they die. And and John, do you know why this is the most romantic move in the whole epilogue? Are you suggesting
0: that there's romance in an anchor hold? Mm-hmm. That's shocking. You're saying Space and Thorstein will never see each other again. How is that romantic? I I think you know, but I I appreciate you playing along with
1: this. Well, okay, I did read the saga. Yeah. Well, okay, then read (laughs) the line that explains the romantic angle behind this decision. It's kind of cool.
0: Okay, I think I know
1: which one you're hinting at. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And when the building was finished, they ended their temporal life together of their own free will, so they might rather come to enjoy sacred life together in the next world.
1: Is that the one? That's the one. Now, doesn't that just melt your heart, assuming that you have one? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a touching moment. I can't deny it. Yeah. Yeah, the thought of the two of them sharing that final embrace, maybe a light kiss, and then that eternal goodbye as they make their way to their respective anchor holds. Oh, but now wait a minute. It's not eternal. Ah, you're right. It's only a goodbye in this world. That's right. Yeah, that kind of thing gives me chills. I I don't personally believe in the afterlife, uh, but it's stories like this that make me really wish that it were true or that I believed. Um, I I love the image of Thorstein in space then reuniting in heaven. Such a beautiful way to end the saga. Except it's not quite over. We've still got one (laughs) more chapter yes with thorstein and space firmly in their ankle holds the author returns one last time to Grettir. it's right. Grettir's saga another, remember
0: <laughs> right right that guy uh, it's another abrupt shift in style and plot the saga is over at this point but the author pauses to cap the story with sterla thortheson's assessment of Grettir.
1: Now, remember we mentioned that Sturla Thortherson had likely written a biography of Grettir sometime in the 13th century. Now, we also mentioned that he's the nephew of Snorri Sturluson. The infamous Snorri Sturluson.
0: That's right. Uh, Sturla says that there was no greater outlaw in Iceland than Grettir the Strong.
1: Which, to me, seems to be a rather direct slight against Gisli, who is, in my opinion anyway, a more impressive outlaw. You're just saying that because he's your thingman. I am not, but I won't delay the conclusion any further with my digressions about Gisli. Okay, uh, so
0: Sturla gives three reasons for Greter's status as the greatest of all outlaws. Number one, he thought that Gretor was the cleverest of all because he lived in outlawry longer than any man in Iceland's history.
1: Clever, really? That's, That's the what word he says. Look, he used brute strength and a strong will to survive. He just beat people up that tried to stop him. I don't know how cleverness comes into that. Well, no. Brute strength
0: might survive, might get you through the first year. But not many men can survive long when all of Iceland is against them. I don't know where At he used. At some uses- point, brute strength and a strong will get you only so far. What's the second reason? Well, you've already spoiled it. Sturlus says that he was the strongest in the land there you go. and was better than any other man at getting rid
1: of revenants. Okay, first of all, that's two reasons. <laughs> second, he wasn't the strongest. The saga yeah. author even acknowledges that Hallmund is stronger than Grettir. Remember yeah, no, when he true. snatches the reins from Grettir and then he later saves his life? Seems to me like Grettir's the second strongest guy in Iceland. Yeah, I mean, obviously that
0: requires being a little picky.
1: Well, or accurate uh, either way. <laughs> What's the third reason? Um, okay, I don't think you can contradict this last one. He says that he's worthy
0: of the title because he was avenged all the way out in Constantinople, really? That's the third reason. yeah, I'm not well, I think it's
1: pretty noteworthy. Hmm. It's a claim to fame that even Gisli can't compete with. Come on, John. Gisli went out like a lion, and I don't care whether Thorstein traveled to Mars to avenge Gredir. You can't <laughs> beat Gisli's last stand. No, 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 no. The point here is not about how they died. No, I know that. But it's also not even about Grettir. This last point is really about how awesome Thorstein is. It even concludes with a note about what a wonderful person Thorstein Drummond becomes in his later days. It's all about Thorstein. So, Sterler really only offers two points in support of his claim that Grettir is the best outlaw. And I've already rejected everything but the claim that he was a good Ghostbuster. Well, your rejecting it does not actually make it canon,
0: <laughs> but still, no, you're doing a hell of a job undercutting the end of the saga here. <laughs> after, this, after this much time, I right. thought we were going to end on a happy note here, praising Gretter. Oh, yeah, we
1: could do that. You know, I, I like Gretir quite, quite well, a bit. Well, then stop pooping all over his legend and give the man some credit. I did. Don't you remember at the start of the episode, I talked about how complex and sympathetic he is. I don't have a problem with Gretir. But I do like Gizly better. <laughs> so, <laughs> look at that. That rhymed. And well-timed. Oh, okay, let's not start rhyming. All right. Uh, so, at long last, we finished. <laughs> we finished the
0: epilogue. And with that, the entire saga. Yes. Uh, we can talk about our feelings for the saga as a whole when we get to judgments. Uh, for now, just give me a quick reaction to the epilogue.
1: A quick one, you say? Please. Well, you know, like most people, I thought the epilogue was odd at first. Um, it's such a dramatic shift away from what we know and love about the sagas. And the fact that it's so derivative, it, it kind of bugged me. All right, that's fair, but you are you clearly have butt face. Uh, so what's the butt? <laughs> oh, how astute of you and how eloquent. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't satisfied with my general indifference to the prologue. So I started thinking about what the author was trying to accomplish with it. All right, so you do assume that it was a single author the whole time. Oh, well, that's a good point. No, uh, I originally thought that it was a later edition by a fan of the romances. I mean, the common title for the epilogue, Spacer uh just reinforces this two-author notion. Yeah. Now, I, I thought the episode, uh, the, I thought the epilogue was a later, perhaps maybe late 14th, early 15th century romance tale that was just appended to the text by a later compiler. Uh, okay, so then what happened? Well, thank you for indulging me here, John. Oh, it's fine. I've still got some beer to drink. Keep Good. Going. All right. Well, so I started thinking about what the epilogue might mean if there were, in fact, a single author. And this idea came to me as I read through Grettir's saga again and noticed the incredible number of other saga characters and episodes brought in. Um, and the fact that he's also playing with folk traditions got me thinking that this author's trying something new that wasn't really done in the sagas as much. By recycling old material, creating a pastiche, adapting his source materials, that kind of thing. Exactly. And and he wouldn't be the first one to do something like this. I mean, remember mm-hmm. uh, we yeah. have Boccaccio yeah. in Italy and Chaucer in England. They're great examples of this literary trend in 14th century. No, that's a good point. And if that's true, then it would make sense if the author took the opportunity at the end of the saga to experiment with another genre that wouldn't have fit in the plot necessarily in the saga's body. And once I considered that possibility, I kind of convinced myself that this big shift in genre and style was completely intentional. And then I started to dig into scholarship, looking for other people's thoughts on the subject. Yeah, I actually looked too. There's not much out there on Space and Thorstein. No, not really. But then I stumbled upon Catherine Hume's very brilliant thematic design of Greta's saga. It's an amazing article. Um, if you can think that scholarship's amazing, like I do, <laughs> uh, if you yeah. can access that one, it's uh, it's really worth a read. Yeah, no, no, no. Wait a minute. I've read that one, I think. Of course you have. What haven't you read? Well, I'm sorry. I read stuff. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I think I see where
0: you've been coming from now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she says, and I I think we said this at the beginning, or I said this at the beginning of the episode. Um, She says, if the spacer theater is indeed integral, then our best chance of understanding its relation to the rest may lie not in minimizing the aesthetic shock, but in accepting it as deliberate. And I like that. No, it's a good, it's, she makes a good point. Yes, she does. Um, she goes on to talk about how Thorstein Drummond's romance idealism and his accomplishments aren't really all that impressive when compared mm-hmm. to Gretchen's. Um in, in her words, the, the romantic ideal is exposed for oversimplifications and shortcomings when compared with the triumphs and tragedies of a hero like Grettir or Sigurd or even Beowulf. Um, outwitting a jealous husband, she says, feels kind of petty when compared to the slaying of dragons or the defeat of Glom. Well, I mean, that's a little bit unfair because,
0: of course, he does track down and kill Thorbjorn Hook. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the saga author seems to support her conclusion because the saga ends with a kind of direct critique of those romance shenanigans, right? That whole going into the the anchor hole.
1: Sure. And that assumes, of course, that you accept as fact that the end of the epilogue isn't a later revision by a very Christian author trying to qualify all that came before Oh, dear God. Let's not go down that path. (laughs) Okay. So before we fall down that little rabbit hole of literary scholarship any further, (laughs) let's just end this here by saying that Catherine Hume's article is pretty awesome, um, that Greta Saga is great, and that the epilogue is an integral part of appreciating the brilliance of this saga. Is that fair? It is. Well done. All right. Um, So that's it. That's it. We are done. We'll be back
0: in a couple of weeks with the Greta Saga judgments. Uh, but in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter.
1: We are at SagaThingPod, uh, or like us on Facebook, SagaThing Podcast. Uh, shoot us an email, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Uh, arrange pebbles into a pleasing fashion that creates a message. Yes, <laughs> so we'll, we'll take a picture with our satellite. <laughs> However you choose to do it, we'd love to hear from you
1: and get your thoughts on the epilogue or any aspect of Greta's Saga. And if we hear from you in time, we might even include your thoughts in the judgment section. Uh, you got about two weeks for that. Eh,
0: or three, Max. Mm-hmm. We're both teaching a lot of uh, freshman comp classes this semester. There's a lot of paper grading in our futures. Oh, don't remind me. Oh, it's fine. Uh, but anyway, it's been a pleasure sharing Greta's Saga with you. Everyone. Indeed it has.
1: Thank you for listening. Bye for now.
0: Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Been a long time gone, old Constantinople, still its Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople.
1: So if you've a day in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say
0: People just liked it better that way Take me back to
1: Constantinople
0: No, you can't go back to Constantinople Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks Liked it better that way. Take me back to Constantinople, no you can't go
1: back to Constantinople. Now it's just Pimble, not Constantinople, why the Constantinople get the works
0: Actually know the words to <laughs> sing.
1: Yeah. It's nobody's business. Uh, but anyway, the oh, oh, for God's oh, sake! <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, keep your day job.